this morning, we have just, last week, we just finished a series called Rescued, Past, Present, and Future. And so this morning, we're going to start a new series with you. That is the events that changed the world or changed everything. And there'll be three or four sections that we're going to work on. We're going to do Jesus' trial, which is what I'm doing today. Uh, Jesus' death. And uh, subsequent burial, that'll be Matthew will be doing that one. And then Easter, uh, pastor will be doing the resurrection. And then there'll be a follow-up passage to the restoration of Peter. And Peter happens to be in the passage here where he denies Christ that we're going to do this morning. But I'm going to leave that alone and save that for pastor on the 28th for him to deal with. But this morning, I wanted to talk about Jesus on trial in John 18. And uh, I want to start with this question for you. Have you ever been accused of something that you were completely innocent of? Show me your hands. How many of you have been... Okay. So probably everybody in the room. You've been accused at some point of doing something or being somewhere where you weren't or something like that. And um, I... Have you ever had this happen to you? Have you ever been served with papers for an appearance in court where you're being accused by someone of something that you did not do. A few of you. That's a little different circumstance when you're called into a judicial circumstance where you're going to stand before a judge and he's going to determine whether or not you are guilty or not guilty of something. Or sometimes it's a peer jury, a jury of your peers that does that, but in the, I, I had that happen to me one time, way, way a long time ago in my life. Um, I had somebody that took me to small claims court, which I had no idea why I was being taken to small claims court. I just had to kind of arrive and see what was going on, and um, very interesting. It's a very interesting time. I don't, it's not a real pleasant experience, but um, it, it happens sometimes. Now, I was exonerated from that, thank God, and um, here's the thing. I was found innocent of that particular item. But I in no way was considered a real innocent man. There's only been one innocent man who's ever walked the face of the earth. And um, one that we could say never sinned. One that never did anything wrong. And that is Jesus Christ. And so our passage this morning in John 18, I just said the whole chapter of John 18 speaks about the trial and sets up the trial. I'm not going to read all of it to you this morning, but in the first 12 verses, uh, Christ is um, arrested. He's arrested in a garden where he had just finished praying. Pretty much all night he had been praying, and he gets arrested in the middle of the night in the garden, betrayed by Judas. And, um, you know, the story goes as Peter tried to... uh, um, rescue him by uh, chopping off Malachus's ear, and Christ said there in verse uh, 11, I think it's, put your sword away, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? And so, um, I look at a purely innocent man being arrested uh, by a mob of people. It wasn't just a few guys. Sometimes we get the idea that maybe it was just a few soldiers that came after him. They say there may have been as many as a thousand people that came to arrest him, which is crazy, but that's a possibility. I don't know that anybody counted them, but I do know that it was a large group of people. Um, 
And what he ended up facing over the next, oh, I don't know, next 24 hours or so, was the Christ, I, you know, the title of the sermon is Jesus on Trial. But he faced several trials, but we're only going to deal with one of them today. Um, but he faced six trials, actually, three by the Jewish authorities and three by the Roman authorities. So three by the religious affiliates, if you will, those that um, should have been looking after him were actually accusing him. And then the Romans, who were the pagans, and uh, we'll talk more about that. I don't want to give it all away, but we're headed there. So um, let me take you just real quickly. Uh, let's just do a little overview of what was happening in Jesus' life as we approach this night. On Sunday, the Sunday previous to this date, Jesus entered into Jerusalem in triumph, held as king by huge crowds. And what happens? The religious leaders at that time become very nervous over this. On the next day, he drove the merchants and money changers out of the temple. The merchants and money changers who happened to be working for the very high priest. So he drove them out. The religious leaders were more nervous and became furious. On the next day, they publicly, the religious leaders publicly challenged Jesus in the temple. And um, he ended up looking pretty good and they looked like fools by the time that was over. And, uh, and so because they looked so bad, they decided they'd stone him. And uh, he just walked right out and they didn't get to do that. Uh, on the next day, he continued to teach in the temple. And meanwhile, the religious leaders schemed and uh, in secret, searching for a way to secretly arrest him. And that's kind of where we come to at this point. Jesus met with his disciples on the following night. And uh, they had a Passover celebration in the upper room there in Jerusalem. And it's uh, come to, been, we know it now as the last supper, as it was the last time he was uh, able to eat with them. And so um, that kind of set the tone. And then the arrest comes, where he's arrested that we talked about already. So let me set the stage here a little bit about the trial that he was going to face. What happens is the Jewish leaders, which was Annas and uh, the, the high priest, Annas and Caiaphas were the ones there. And Caiaphas happened to be the son-in-law of Annas. Annas had been a high priest previously and um, had enjoyed the spoils of wealth that he had developed during that time. Because as a high priest, you were in charge. You had authority. You were almost like a king. And once he was removed, he put his son in first after him. Then leading after that was Caiaphas, which is his, happens to be his son-in-law. And so he just kept staying in charge. And what he had done is he had built wealth for his family through the temple stuff. All the stuff that was happening at the temple. When you came for the Passover, you were supposed to bring a clean animal, a very clean animal that you would sacrifice. And uh, these guys... These high priests happened to have just, they happened to be in charge of telling you whether or not your animal was clean enough to be sacrificed. And in that, most of the time, the animal you brought was not clean enough. Because they happened to have a little side business that they would sell you an animal at a very high price. Because you couldn't go anywhere else to get that animal and you needed to be forgiven. So at the Passover, you needed to have the blood of a lamb or the blood of a turtle dove or whatever you could afford and it had to be used so that you could be forgiven. So you talk about leverage. They used leverage. 
And uh, one of the commentaries I read said that Annas was almost like a godfather, like a religious mafia boss. He was ruthless. And so every time that another high priest was appointed, it happened to be somebody that was somehow related to him. So that's what Christ is. And what they do is they have a little pre-trial uh, put on by them where they try and come up with an indictment against Christ so they can then present him to the Romans and have him actually be tried. And both were trials. But let's take a, we're going to take a real quick look at what was wrong with their system. A document called the Mishnah records some of the rules and guidelines for the Jews for their court system. All right, and I got this through Dr. Bach uh, out of Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, he has a book on this, and I happened to pull some of these things out. No trials. So here's the They didn't waste any time breaking these rules, by the way. Okay? No trials were to be held at night. None. They weren't supposed to be held at nighttime. They were supposed to be done in the day. And so, uh, but this trial started in the midnight hours. And, and then no trials were to be held on a Sabbath eve, the day before a Sabbath, or the day before a, a, a celebratory time. They, they were fixing to do the unleavened, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. They were going to do that. So this wasn't supposed to be happening because of that either. But the trial started at Passover and on the Sabbath eve. So then all trials would be open to the public. The, the public had no knowledge of this. It was done in secret. Um, all trials would be held in the Hall of Judgment in the temple area, but Jesus was taken to Annas' chambers initially. And any capital case had to follow a strict order, beginning with arguments by the defense, but no one was allowed to speak in defense of Jesus at all. There was no one there to defend him. And according to Jewish law, no one could be sentenced in a capital case until the following day. Uh, after the San Sanhedrin would adjourn and they would meet to discuss this trial that was being considered in pairs. They would talk to each other about what they had heard. So that was what was supposed to happen, but that never happened. And um, so, and then Jesus was never supposed to be uh, required to testify against himself. Kind of like our Fifth Amendment rule that we can always deny saying something if it were to incriminate us. He was in that kind of position, but yet he was uh, asked over and over to incriminate himself. And we'll find out that he can't incriminate himself because he's done nothing wrong. So that's kind of where we lead to. And so um, in, in that, Annas had a few questions for Christ, and he asked those questions, and um, we find out that um, he was getting nowhere with him because Christ would not incriminate himself. Christ did this wonderful thing. He had this wonderful ability to take a question asked to him, and instead of really, he answered the question with a question. So instead of being on the defensive, he always put the person that asked the original question on the defensive. And so he did that. Uh, it's very interesting when we see that when, when he starts to be questioned by, um, by, the, uh, by Annas here in, uh, in verses uh, 15, excuse me, verses 19, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Now, that, there's a whole lot that could have been being asked right there. There's a whole lot of things they could have been questioning him about, like healing people on the Sabbath and... Uh, and doing things like that that were against the law that they knew. There was probably a lot of those kind of questions that took place. And he said this, I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. 
Why question me? Ask those who heard of me. Surely they know what I said. So instead of him trying to defend himself, he says, why don't you ask the people that were there when I spoke? Why, I'm not supposed to defend myself. You're supposed to have witnesses against me that you don't have. So why don't you ask the people that were there? You know they were there. That's why you know what I said. So that's kind of what happened there. And so um, it's very interesting that in uh, the, the latter segment here in, um, I want to make sure I say this. In verse 14, Annas sends, Caiaphas, sends Christ back to Caiaphas. Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. This is what he said. And so that happens over in chapter 11 of John, and I just want to read that. Um, he says this, chapter 11, verse 47 through 52. This is what is taking place. This is where the Pharisees and the chief priests and the Sanhedrin are all plotting to kill Christ, to have him arrested. But listen to what happens here. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Now this made the high priest very nervous that they might take away their temple and their nations. Because how were they making their money? Through that temple. That's how they had all their power, through the nation and through the temple. That's how they were succeeding. So if they didn't continue to do that in a proper way, or if that got taken away from them, there goes all their sources of wealth and their sources of power. Because Romans were over them. They were under the reign of Rome. And so Romans could say, you're no longer a nation and we're taking your temple away. They allowed them to operate within that, but they could take it away. So this is their concern. But it wasn't about the temple or the nations. They are worried about their income levels. And they are worried about their authority and having power. That's what they were really worried about. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all, he says to them. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than the whole nation perish. Think about that. Is that not a great statement about Jesus Christ? You following that? It's better that one man die than the whole nation perish. Hmm, we read on. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. Here is an evil man, a wicked, evil man, who's after nothing but his own self and his own self-worth. And he's actually prophesying the truth. He's telling the truth. Even though they're trying to set up a trial for Christ and kill him off, he says, it's better for Christ to die than we lose the whole nation. That's what he's saying. But it's interesting that he says, that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation and not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God. Who are the scattered children of God? The elect. The Gentiles and the Jewish nations. He's dying for all of them. It's better for him to die than all of the nations die. Guess what Christ came to do? He came to die on your behalf so you wouldn't have to die. So he was prophesying without even knowing what he was saying. God used this evil man to actually make a statement that was true about what was about to happen. 
So that's why I wanted to share that with you. We'll get back to our passage. I want to get to the Roman trial. That's the main point of what I'm talking about. But I want to say this. The whole big idea that I'm trying to get through to you, this was the biggest trial there's ever been. It was the largest trial that you've ever heard about. Not because a lot of people attended it or a lot of people watched it on TV. Judge Judy was not presiding. This was a huge trial in that it set the stage for Christ's death. The Jewish, if, if he had just been taken by vengeful people and put on a cross and nailed to that cross, it wouldn't have had the same effect as this. This was a necessary part of the end result that God was looking for. So it's probably the biggest trial that we've ever heard about. And I know we've had some. We've had some crazy trials in this country. But none of them compare to this. It's also the most crooked trial there ever was. As we read about how they incorrectly did things. But thank God. The reason it was the most crooked trial. You know, there's been other trials where people have been set up. There have been. We would, be, we would be remiss to not think that. That's the truth. But never has there been a, a setup like this over someone who was completely innocent of all crimes, of all sin, never sinned. That's, the, that's what this trial was set up for. And the Jewish people are indicting Christ in their trial so they can take him to the Roman court, to the Roman government, because the Jewish, because they were under the reign of the Romans, had no authority to carry out a death sentence. So, I'm going to go through here. Four steps to a Roman trial. And they're all present in this passage. Four steps. First, you have an accusation. Second, there's an interrogation. Third, there's an, an allowance for a defense. And number four, there's a verdict that is produced. Let's talk about the first one. In verse 28, step one, the accusation. Who brought the accusation? Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the, rubber, of the Roman governor. By now, it was early morning. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So it's in the wee hours of the morning. So I, I read several different commentaries and different things about this. They figured this was probably about 3 o'clock in the morning, maybe 4. 3 or 4 o'clock in the morning when they actually go to the Roman governor. So, you know, they probably woke him up when they brought him there. They probably, they probably had to get him out of bed. So I don't think he was very happy. Pilate probably was not very happy that they'd woke him up. But they brought him there. But I want to point out, by now it was early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Now, wait a minute. These are wicked, ruthless men after their own agenda who all they want to really do is kill Jesus, an innocent man. But yet they want to stay ceremonially clean. So, so they didn't want to physically, outwardly appear to be unclean. 
although inwardly they were anything but clean. You see that? You see that? They wanted to bring an innocent man and have him to be crucified. An innocent man crucified. Because they were afraid that they were going to lose all their power and their money and all this stuff like that. So, willing to condemn an innocent man to death without a fair trial, but they must keep up their outward appearance. We, we got to we got to stay right before people. Why, why do you think that bothered him so much? Well, what we read earlier about when Christ came in four days earlier, he came riding in to a parade. He was honored by the, the Jewish nation when he came into the city. King of the Jews. Right? So they're a little nervous. Even the high priest and the Sanhedrin are a bit nervous right now because we want him gone because he's nothing but trouble for us. So we want him eliminated. Let's get him off the scene so that we can save the whole nation. Save the nation for what? For themselves, basically. So at this point, he's got this accusation that's taking place. But listen to what Pilate. Now, Pilate's not in this game. He's not on the religious side. He's a pagan. He can't stand the Jews. He can care less. They're nothing but a pain in his side. They constantly bring him issues. They're nothing but a pain to him. So he doesn't care about the religious factors. He doesn't care about any of this. The biggest thing he's trying to do is keep, keep things on a level. Keep it level so they're not too high or too low. He's trying to keep them settled. That's his job. But listen to what he says. He doesn't buy into this whole thing. He says, so Pilate came out to them and asked this, what charges are you bringing against the man? They, he must have an indictment. He can't put him on trial if there's no charges. And, and I love their response. Their response is so goofy. What, look at it. It's in verse uh, 30. If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. That's your indictment? Your indictment is if he was, hey, take our word for it, he's a criminal. Matter of fact, he's a criminal that deserves to die. Hold on. Wait a minute. He's a pagan man, but he at least sees that if they got nothing more than that, we got to figure out some other things. You got to have more than that. Note that there was no witnesses produced. None. Matter of fact, if you think about it, they don't want to go inside the palace because they don't want to be ceremonially unclean. But where's Jesus at? He's inside the palace. He's in there with Pilate. What does Pilate have to do? He has to keep going back and forth. He goes outside to talk to the Jewish leaders who are the accusers. They're the ones bringing the indictment. Then he's got to go back into Jesus. Jesus never sees the indicters. He never hears the witness. He never gets to see the witnesses face to face in the trial circumstance. Can you imagine in any court not getting to see who your accusers are? Now, he knows who they are because he's been dealing with them for a while. But the fact of the matter is they're trying to go to court and produce and be a witness against him without facing him. Not done anywhere that I know of. Matter of fact, I don't know of any other trial circumstance in the history of the Jewish courts or the Roman courts that happened like this. Where it broke all the rules. There's no other trial that we know of. Or that I know of. And I was studying this pretty hard and I never saw one. 
This is not an indictment that would hold up in any court. Can we, can we say that? That would not hold up in any court. Kind of like saying, you could just take our word for it, he's a criminal. Well, I'm going to tell you what right now. You better give me a, a different attorney then. Because that is just not, there's nothing fair about this at all. Nothing. So Pilate says, mm, yeah, not buying that. I'm not going for that. Because now you're trying to put his blood on my hands. That's really what they're doing. Because they have no authority to kill anybody. They want him to do it. And it doesn't matter if they got anything against the person or if they really have any true evidence. As long as you do it, we got nothing on us. The Roman, they can tell all their Jewish friends who are not going to be happy that they assassinated the, the Savior, Jesus. They can tell them, well, we didn't do it, it was the Romans that did that. But we read on. Take him yourself and judge him by your own law. That's what Pilate says. But we have no right to execute anyone they objected. Notice how they jumped right to execute. Not we don't have a right to try him. We have no right to, to execute someone. What's this tell you? It tells you chapter 11 was for real. They brought it forward. They're gonna arrest, they've already got him arrested. Now they're going to get him killed. That's their whole goal. They've got to get him off the scene. So they objected. This took place to fulfill, so they objected to it. This took place to fulfill what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. They did not want to judge him and put him to death by their own hands, although they were very clearly wanted a trial. They definitely wanted, and as I was looking at this and looking at some different commentaries as I was going through this and studying this, it seems like there may have been even a little precursor from them to Pilate informing him that they were going to be bringing this Jesus. This Jesus guy's a lot of trouble. He's causing us problems. We may end up having to have a trial. And Pilate just, he, he didn't, like I said before, he didn't really care for them. They were nothing but a pain to him. And so he wasn't going for it. He's kind of like, nope, I ain't going for this. You've got to prove things to me. You've got to have witnesses. You've got to have some kind of a something besides just your word saying that he's done these things. So, um, but you also got to remember there are some political ramifications going on here too, even with him. His job was to keep them settled. So that's going to be kind of important as we look on. Step two, we get to the interrogation. Now the interrogation is where the uh, actual, it would normally be in, in our system, it would be a lawyer would question you. They would question the witnesses. They would question you if you were being, uh, if it was you that was on trial. They would ask you questions, okay? And, and so... Pilate goes back in to the palace after this, this interchange with the religious leaders. He goes back in, and now he's going to talk to Jesus again. He summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of Jews? So now then, why would that be important that he know that? Are you the king of the Jews? Are you claiming to be the king of the Jews? It's not because if he was and he really wasn't that he'd be blaspheming because Pilate doesn't care about that. The reason that they brought this up to, to Pilate, the reason the Jewish leaders brought this to him was because that could be contrived as he's trying to take over for Caesar if he's becoming the king of the Jews. There's only one ruler in Rome, and that's Caesar. So this is how they got Pilate's attention. They started telling him, oh, well, you know he's the, he claims to be the king of the Jews. Well, that piqued Pilate's interest at that point because now guess what 
if he lets it go on without doing anything about it and the emperor finds out that he allowed that he's going to lose his head not only going to lose his beach house down in uh, uh, down in Caesarea there he's going to also lose his head and so he knows that and there's these political ramifications that take place so that's why he goes back and are you the king of the Jews now this is interesting because Christ defends himself here and you got to remember this is in that interrogation phase and um, so here we go uh, is that your own idea in verse 34 I read this earlier to the First service, I said, this is how Pilate went in there in my mind. This is how I read this. He comes back in and he sees Jesus. Now, he's already met with him, but he sees him and he goes, wait a minute, are you the king of the Jews? You? Are you the king of the Jews? Are you trying an uprising? This is what he's saying. Are you going to uprise? Are you going to try and take over and become the king of the Jewish nation and take Caesar's place? Is that what you're doing? How does Jesus answer it? And I think he answered it just about like this. Is that your own idea? Is that what you think? Or, or did others talk to you about me? See, Jesus read right through all that. Wait a minute, you just heard that from them out there. They're claiming, I'm trying to take over for Caesar, basically, so that they can have a point of indictment. Because if he was trying to take over for Caesar, if he is trying to become the king in a physical way in the earth, if he's trying to do that, then now I have a right to crucify him. I have a right to put him to death. That's insurrection. You can't do that. All right? So, Pilate replied, he says this, am I a Jew? Am I a Jew? How would I know? He says, your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? What have you done? It's an important question on a political ramification. Jesus has to distinguish. When this question is asked, he has to distinguish between it being the political issue or a spiritual issue, an issue not of this world. And that's kind of how he answers it if we go on. If it was political, it would have been seen as sedition. And sedition is to revolt against civil authority. He would have been revolting against the authority that he was under. And that would have been cause for him to be uh, guilty of, of a crime that would have seen him die. But step three, we get to step three, which is the defense. And this is in verses 36 through 38a. Let's read those together. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom that I'm the king over is not of this world. Uh, if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. Now, I have a feeling that when he says, my servants, I don't think he's talking about the apostles. If it was just the apostles that were with him or the people that were praying in the garden, remember, they were all asleep anyway. I think he's talking about his servants in heaven. You with me? It's like, if he's talking about the human stuff, you're talking about the greatest army there ever was in the Romans in Rome that, at that time. You weren't taking him over with a bunch of, a few fishermen that had a sword. If it were, if my kingdom was anywhere but this world, if, if, if it was in this world, if it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is 
from another place. The kingdom I'm the king of is from a different place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone, everyone, this is important, everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Everyone on the side of truth hears my voice when I call them. Everyone on the side of truth sees what I've done and puts their trust in me. The right side of truth. This morning, are you on the right side of truth? If you're a believer in Christ, you're on the right side of truth. You heard him. Your ears were opened to the message of Jesus Christ, and you accepted him, and you were saved. The very innocent man who's facing a trial took the place of us who weren't very innocent in that trial. And then Pilate says this famous words, what is truth? Retorted Pilate. So I'm, I'm believing now. I've seen that particular passage, what is truth? I've seen it used several different ways. But in the context of what's going on here, I think he was so fed up trying to figure out did he really have a charge that he could put against Christ or not. And Christ says everyone lands on the right side of truth and they listen to the right side of truth. They listen to me. And then he says, what is truth? I'm trying to figure this out. What is truth? What, what is the truth? What are we talking about here? So Jesus makes it clear here that he is a king, but not the kind like Pilate is thinking of. I'm not the one that you need to worry about taking Caesar's place. I'm not here to do that. My kingdom is in another area. I, I'm under a different authority than you are. His followers do not take up weapons like the Romans would. They don't, they could have, he could have called 10,000 angels is the way I understand it. Beautiful song like that. His is a different kingdom from another realm with a different authority or a different reign. And Pilate starts seeing this. He starts to understand it. Now we know that. Now this is Christ defending himself. Now this, I love this. The Jewish people, they were under the reign of the Romans. Pilate himself was under the reign of the emperor. But Christ was under the reign and the authority of his heavenly father. Huh? A different kind of authority. Different kind of authority. And here's the thing. Christ does not rule his kingdom by force but by the conviction and persuasion of the truth. None of you were saved by force. None of you believed in Jesus Christ by force. It was by the conviction and persuasion of the Holy Spirit to show you who Christ really was or who he really is. So Pilate, now we get to step four, the part we're all waiting for. Step number four is the verdict. So what's the verdict? What, what have you heard that you would say, he should be guilty. Just yourselves. What did you hear? Like, oh yeah, he's guilty of something. I don't know what it is, though. Okay, well now you're about to have him executed if he's guilty. So what does Pilate do? With this, so now he's, he's heard them. He's heard the Jewish rulers. He's heard what their complaint is. And he's now heard Christ defend himself against those accusations. 
Okay? So now Pilate, whether he realizes it or not, he believes the truth because he believes what Christ said. Right? How do we know that? Because of the verdict. With this, he went out again to the Jews, gathered there, the Jewish leaders and those, and said, and these are wonderful words, I find no basis for a charge against him. I find no reason to charge this man with anything. Well, that's great. At this point, in any other trial, this would have been over. If you are accused of a crime and you go before a judge or a jury and they say at the end of that thing, not guilty. Uh, we typically see a party going on from the, the person that was accused because they've now beaten the, the, they beat the rap, basically. They've, they've proven that they were innocent. And there's typically a party. And guess what happens? Are you put back in jail? What happens to you whenever you're not guilty? You're free. You're released. You can go out. You can go do the things you were doing before. But in this case, what happened? Pilate decided that he couldn't let him go. Because I think when he went back out and told this Jewish gathering, now remember, they want him dead. They want Jesus dead. They're not going to stop at anything but seeing him die. They're like sharks in water where there's blood. They just are going to keep circling until they get what they want. So that's what they're doing. So Pilate, because he feared them, not because they had a great army, but because if they were unrest, if they were unruly, if they got out of hand, if there was a riot, he would be accused of not doing his job by the emperor. Once again, his beach house would be gone and his head might be gone. So he had to make sure that he kept that under control. So because he can find no guilt in the man, but because there's an uprising by them, he now says, hmm, wait a minute, we have kind of an exception here. We have what we call a custom. We're at Passover. We're allowed as the Romans, we allow you to let one man go free. So what Pilate did was he compromised. Instead of standing for what was really true and just because of his fear of men, he compromised. He let them make a decision. And we see that in verses 39 and 40. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. Now, Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. He was a robber. He was a murderer. He was all the things that they were accusing Jesus of being. They were accusing Jesus of, He's becoming the king. He's going to be, there's going to be an uprising under him. The very innocent Jesus Christ who had done nothing wrong. They're going to take Barabbas who had done everything that Christ was being accused of. Does this make any sense? Not at all. Except that it had to be. That, that's where it makes sense to me. It doesn't make any sense logically. Like, why would they do this? 
Pilate was afraid of men. So he gives them the, the custom, a custom that you can do. This specific thing that we can do. Uh, you know what? I'll release somebody else and we'll make him, we'll make this innocent man pay the price that the guy that we release should be paying. Does this sound familiar to you? You know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of before I was saved, I had something in front of me that was stopping me. I was dead to God. I was guilty of all this child should have been my child. But Christ became my substitute. Even in the trial. All right, let me change that. Christ became my substitute and your substitute. Maybe that'll get a better response because that was kind of pale at best. No, he became your substitute. This trial was necessary for him to be able to be punished by the Roman people on a cross because in the past, that's what had been predicted by the prophets. He's going to hang on a tree. If the Jewish, you know if the Jewish people had punished him, you know what they'd have done with him? They wouldn't have hung him on a tree. You know what they would have done? They would have stoned him. That would have took place down here. It said he was to be lifted up. Huh? It had to happen this way. It had to be this way. So I, I look at this and I think, that should have been my trial. Barabbas, you should be the one that died. Not Christ. He did nothing. He was innocent. But it took someone that was innocent and perfect to die on your behalf. And the only person that that ever could be was Jesus Christ. I read this quote from Ray Stedman. Pilate chose compromise and ended up a murderer of an innocent man. There was a consequence for his compromise. Christ himself died. An innocent man, the most innocent man that's ever walked the face of the earth, died because he compromised. He compromised the truth. And basically, he compromised the truth for a lie. If you think about it. And so... I know none of you have ever done that, have you? You ever make any compromises? I heard it said the first compromise is the easiest one, or the hardest one, excuse me. They all become easy after that. So are you compromising anything? The crowd chose Barabbas, and they ended up crucifying the Son of God. And then this one here, I love it. Jesus chose the cross and ended up King of Kings and Lord of Lords and our Savior because he chose to do the Father's will. So that's the trial of Jesus. That's what took place. This is only one of them. Now, there were six of them, and I didn't have to, they weren't in this passage because if they were, we'd have been here a lot longer than we are right now. But this is where we're at. So I look back at the the four steps of the trial, and I think, you know what? Could have been me that needed to go through those four steps. I, at one time, could have been accused for sure. Uh, I, I, if I had been interrogated, I would have been wrong. If I would have needed a defense, I didn't have one. 
well i'm a good guy that's not a good defense when you've sinned against god that's the accusation i've sinned against god the interrogation is why haven't you accepted my son he's the he's the defense that i'm giving you why didn't you accept him the verdict when you accept the son is not guilty the verdict if you don't accept him is you are guilty and you face death eternal death but it took someone perfect to go through this trial that it ultimately leads to a verdict of we're going to crucify you which matt will cover for us next week so i don't want to step in his area but you want to make sure you're back here next week so you can see the results of this very very crooked trial a crooked trial if ever there was someone who deserved a not guilty plea or a not guilty verdict it was christ and he actually got that verdict but then he was traded off and became a substitute for Barabbas, but he also became our substitute. What an incredible thing. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us. I thank you that um, in eternity past, you decided that this trial would be necessary. And Jesus, we want to just say thank you for the way you handled yourself even amongst these vipers how you answer questions with questions. The wisdom of you is amazing. We love you today. I thank you that uh, you could have called your servants and never faced this death. You, you could have called them and never been held prisoner or been arrested, but you chose to do the Father's will, as you told Peter in that verse 11 here. Am I not to do the Father's will? I, I, I'll drink this cup. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you for being willing to drink the cup on our behalf. And the trial was just the beginning phase. It gets progressively worse. But then there's some victory in the end. So we thank you. May your uh, name be glorified in all that we've said here today and in our worship. And we just want to thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.